if you ask people that have deployed with Jim Zarnick what they remember about Jim Zarnick is that Jim never deployed any place with less than 50 pounds of unpopped popcorn because the smell of popcorn brought a sense of home to young people away from home. Welcome to War Docs. This show brings you a firsthand behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of military physicians. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. This is part two of our interview with Dr. Jim Zarnick. Jim's a colonel in the U.S. Army and for more than 30 years has served as a soldier, officer, physician, and commander in special operations in both Afghanistan and Iraq. Jim is currently the Deputy Chief of Staff and Command Surgeon of the U.S. Army Special Operations Command. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. you have a best save your entire career? I do. So I know that pride is one of the seven deadly sins. It's in my chief resident year of my emergency medicine program. An elderly gentleman who is overweight, who has got renal failure as well and is on dialysis, is rolled back into the emergency department. And he's got the the very concerning signs of, I'm weak and dizzy. Well, if you know anybody, anything about dialysis patients and renal failure, you worry about their potassium really quickly because it can lead to arrhythmias in their heart. And if their heart doesn't beat well, their blood doesn't circulate well, and they can die quickly because their heart becomes really, really irritable. Um, so I see this patient come in and another team takes over for him and they start working him and getting him. And I'm a chief resident, so I'm moving in the rest of the department at the time. And they're working him and he's getting sicker and sicker. And surgery had been down there for a trauma. And you know how kind of the bays start to fill up a little bit when people are getting sick. And and then this guy codes. So there he gets intubated. They're doing CPR. They're pushing drugs over and over and over. And I'm still kind of bouncing around the department because you got 15 other beds right, that you still got to manage. And they're working this guy and they're getting ready to call the code uh, because they had been going for a while doing good CPR, but they had tried everything. And they kind of, they looked at all, all the general surgeons who were there and the internists and, Hey, anybody think of anything else before we call this? Are we missing anything? And, and the ER staff physician said, can anybody think of anything else? And. I, I think that this was, you gotta remember my first, my two and a half, first two and a half years of my three year emergency medicine residency. Uh, I shot my boots before I went in. I had a pressed uniform. I kept a ranger high and tight. And so this was kind of that when in charge, take charge or get out of the way. And he said, can anybody else think of anything? And I just remember saying, yes, give me three amps of bicarb right now. And I want to push him through his central line one after another. And they looked at me like, what? I said, just give me the bicarb and push it. So he pushed three amps, one right after another. Damned if he didn't come back to normal sinus rhythm. He didn't stabilize. The rest of the meds kind of took over. And he came back to life. Followed him in the unit. He got extubated in the morning. When his wife came up to see him in the morning, she said, he's the exact same guy that I knew, the exact same jerk that I have been living with for a long time. And I, that was kind of my, my big save. And of course, in the emergency department for a while, they were like, you know, Hey, look at Zarnik. He, he raised the Lazarus. Um, and, and 
all that was was a function of listening and paying attention to everything that's going on and the benefit to be to be honest of not getting tunnel vision and not getting all the way pulled right into the center of what's going on but kind of being able to maintain a bit of a 30,000 foot perspective and i would say that that is the person not interestingly not in a combat environment but in an environment where it's pure medicine that was my greatest save you know if someone's if they're within minutes seconds of calling the code i would consider that a pretty good save Tell us a little bit about how important medics and other senders are in the special operations community. So they are foundation to the survivors, to the survival of injured personnel on the battlefield. They are foundational to the health, maintaining preventive medicine of the individuals on the battlefield. They are foundational in that they are excellent soldiers who just happened to be medics. And so I'm going to start at the medic level. And this is very, very near and dear to my heart uh, because many people in the civilian world don't really understand what medics are tasked to do. And so for the training of a special operations medic or for a 68 whiskey, uh, yeah, special operations combat medic, not even a Delta, imagine that one day, the tuba player in the high school band, whose biggest decision that they, they've got to make is who to ask for the prom, joins the army. And six months later, they have got to be ready to go on the battlefield under fire and save their buddy. So just think about that for a second. And when physicians who have not had experience with the medics think about them, they say, you know, they're, they're, they're really not good. Um, you know, they can only do kind of a limited amount of things and uh, I could do better than they, they could. And they will often cast judgment and we will push training to the nth degree to, to get them the spun up as quickly as we can, the medics. And I just want to draw a little comparison because one of the people listening here is a vascular surgeon. So I'm betting that they did four years of, they did four years of college, then four years of medical school, then a year of internship. And then depending on where they went, four or five years for their general surgery practice. So we're getting close to 15 years. And then they do a fellowship in vasculature. And let's just say that's another uh, two years. So you got 17 years to prepare that person, take care of patients. And the young medic in comparison has six months. Now the young medic gets virtually zero time with doing what we would refer to as live tissue training with something that's alive to care for. So to learn how to care for wounds, to understand physiology, to know what the feeling of warm blood feels like late at night when you can't see the blood, to understand the rapid pulse, somebody who's in shock or the very rapid shallow respirations of someone who's got attention. So you got the young medic who were supposed to teach those things in six months, but they don't get access to them. And yet we take the physician who now we've given 17 years and a full 10 years of that is real live tissue training, but they're not doing it on animals. They're doing live tissue training on humans and they're just doing it under the auspices of the staff physician. So how many interns are certified to do an appendectomy as an intern, yet they still do it in their internship year of training. They access the belly. And so how important are the medics? What we take is the least, the youngest, least trained person and put them the furthest forward away from any medical support. 
and we expect them to keep their friends alive. So how important are they? In a battalion, there was one physician and one PA. However, I've probably got 15 medics. And this comes down to it's not about you because I, as the physician or the physician assistant, can't be everywhere at once. It's fundamentally the medic who saves people's lives. There's a famous quote that says that the, uh, the, the survivability of a patient in combat will de- depends on the first person that applies the bandit, right? And, and many surgeons and physicians who think they have gone far forward see themselves as first responders. I, you know, I, they came to my forward surgical team first, right? You're not a first responder. You're a first receiver. And most of them don't know what it takes to take care of that patient out in the middle of the dark with only what you're carrying on your back. Oh, by the way, you're all already cold, wet, tired, and hungry and smoked. And so how important are those medics? They are the reason why 99% of our casualties who survive on the battlefield survive. It's not about the physicians. It's not about the nurse. It's about those physicians who have the least amount of training time, the least amount of access to clinical care, real patient care, live tissue care, and they're the ones who see combat and injury for the first time on the battlefield. They are the center of gravity in combat for saving lives, hands down. I don't know how much stronger I can give you that sense. And we just need to understand that we cannot compare them to the physician, the nurse, or the physician assistant. And what we often do to them or over the last 20 years, we would have forward surgical facilities or, or deployed hospitals. And a medic would call up on the phone and say, I've got this kind of casualty. It's a local national with this gunshot wound or this blast injury. And I'm doing all I can, but they need to get medevac out to the hospital. And then we have personnel who have never been far forward or never been in a your environment say, yeah, sorry, we got to keep beds open. We really don't have the availability. So you just got to take care of them. We give the hardest medical decisions to the youngest, least trained, least clinical judgment, and they still make it happen. Tell us what is your most challenging assignment that you had in your military career? Huh. I think you're going to laugh at this. So I finished, I finished uh, a decade of war. And the last three of those, I served as the command surgeon for the Joint Special Operations, the command surgeon joint medical unit, which is a unit of physicians, nurse anesthetists, physicians assistants, and some medics to take care of people in very far forward austere places. And and spent I had a whole decade of doing that kind of combat. My most difficult year in my military career was the first year after that, because I had been pressing really hard. For 10 years. And my wife said, Hey, Jim, we'll do whatever you want to do. And you have not been home very much at all. And when you were home, you weren't really present. And so at that point, I said, look, got it. You get 51% of the vote. Tell me what you want to do. And she said, said, look, I would like to step away and give the kids an opportunity to see you more and to see more of the world. She said, if we could move to Europe for a couple of years and you do a job there, it would really give us a little bit of respite. So make a long story short, because I had been in the special operations world, but not in the direct army medical department world, working in their medical treatment facilities, I opted to command a clinic and I got accepted to be the commander for the clinic at the Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe. And that first year in that clinic was my hardest year in the army. Why? 
because it was full of people who had been there for many years, full of civilians who the war had just passed by. I had about eight different nations of physicians working in the environment, some of who didn't get along from a national standpoint. Uh, and I was wrestling with my own post-traumatic stress injury. And that first year was exceedingly hard because I had to convince the people in that facility that I was an owner, I wasn't a rector, and that I wanted to help and make the place run better. So the first year of that command was the hardest one of my, in the, in the military. Interestingly enough, the second year of that command was my best year in them because they understood my intent and they understood I trusted them. And so routinely, if I was away and I'd say, Hey, I'm not going to get fly back in until midnight or one o'clock in the morning. I won't be able to come in until nine or 10 o'clock in the morning. They would say, Hey, sir, just stay home. We got it. We understand your intent. And they just ran with the ball. And that was joyous to be able to build a team that you believe in and they know you trust them. That's a magical environment. One question I have is, is there anything now that keeps you up at night about operational medicine? Well, what I want to do is go on record at saying is literally me being up at night has stopped after about 15 years of uh, 13 years of nightmares, waking up in cold sweats, being very, very irritable, kind of wanting to remove myself from a, a social environment, being really angry that people just didn't understand. And and that was all part of Jim's post-traumatic stress injury that it I first really embraced was a commander at shape at the clinic. And I think one of the one of the most powerful things that happened there was I went to see my own people in my own clinic for help. And they said, hey, Jim, you've got this pretty bad. We're going to send you into Brussels to get taken care of. And I said, that's silly. If I'm not willing to go see my own clinic, why would I expect any of my other soldiers to do that? So I got seen there, told all my soldiers, everybody in the population. And I started to improve from there. About eight years later, I did a intensive outpatient program for post-traumatic stress. Probably one of the more senior guys ever who did it while still in uniform. Interestingly enough, in a hospital that I otherwise could have been commanding. Now, why do I tell that story? Because it's not only that's not keeping me up every night, but what is keeping me up every night for about operational medicine is that we haven't normalized the return of people, of soldiers to their environment and their family. We haven't normalized a transition process that should take place. And with that, I mean, when you do something over and over and over again for six or seven or eight months in a row, look, remember for a while, we had people deployed for 12 months and for a time, 15 months at a time, they would come back home for eight months or maybe 10 months and then go back again for a year. Normal became where they were deployed and home became abnormal. And in Jim's mind, the real difficulty that we had with operational medicine as a whole was the force didn't mentally transition to back to the home environment. And so we had people using the same habits, being downrange, using them at home, and it got them in trouble, and their families didn't understand. So what concerns me about operational medicine is that from a medicine standpoint overall and the culture of the military, we haven't embraced that aspect of that it just applies to everybody. And and, and this isn't about destigmatizing it. It's just normalizing. Hey, you're a normal person that went into some really abnormal stuff. And you did that for eight or 12 months. We have to make an active transition plan with you and your family to come back and transition, not from what we would call your combat TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures, but your home social 
habit. So from a personnel standpoint, that's what worries me about operational medicine. Still to this day, the other really big thing that worries me about operational medicine is that our biggest enemy now in the operational medicine world is that we are at risk of losing the training platform that convert physicians from people who do medicine while in the military to military medical providers. And there is a cultural change and there is an injury pattern change. There is an infectious disease that is very different. And quite frankly, when we train physicians or medics in the Western world, we train them how to be excellent physicians with all their equipment that they are used to in the Western world. And they confuse what they're doing every day with, in fact, what they're for. And what they're for is to support combat activities in an austere environment. So where is the environment where we allow those people to go train in an austere environment? How do we make all of our medical providers throughout the whole spectrum comfortable without having a full surgical team, without having their full tray of tools that they're used to doing? How how do we just make damage control surgery secondary? How do we make whole blood collection and transfusion by the lowest level medic normal? How do we, how do we train to view prolonged field care as normal? Where do we, where do we go to train that? Because we don't get that training in a hospital in the Western world. That's what concerns me about operational medicine. We're fortunate to have you as one of the first physicians to be engaged with combat actions following 9-11. What have you seen over the last 20 years of war is the biggest change that has occurred in battlefield care? And what do you foresee as the greatest change 20 years from now that we will have in battlefield care? Very easily, the three biggest changes that we did for battlefield care was we brought back the use of the tourniquet as a first choice for large extremity wound. We understood the difference between compressible hemorrhage and non-compressible hemorrhage because prior to that, 80% of all casualties on the battlefield died from non-compressible hemorrhage. And we were training people. The first thing previously we were training them to do is start an IV while they had an amputation and watched it bleed out on the ground. So the resurfacing, the reintroduction of tourniquet use, the studies and how long a tourniquet can stay on someone before they get permanent extremity damage or injury, and the fact that we've saturated the battlefield with the tourniquet and the the training, hands down, uh, I think has saved more lives than anything else that we've done. That and superior firepower. Let me just be go up front and say that. The second thing that we've done is we re-embrace the whole concept of whole blood transfusion. It just boggled my mind that even when I was training with ATLS and we said, okay, start two lower, larger or IVs and give them crystalloid, I'm like, look, when my car runs out of gas, it needs gas to run. I don't put water in the tank, right? And then we would give packed red cells and platelets and component therapy. Look, we have re-embraced the value of fresh, warm, whole blood for casualties. And those of us who have used it know that it is life-saving literally life-saving. And the fact that those two things have spilled over into the civilian sector right now is huge. I will tell you that four months ago, my sister-in-law had a severe GI bleed, and I know she would have had died had the physicians there and the surgeons there not learned about whole blood, warm whole blood transfusion that spilled over from the military. Third most important thing that we've gotten to is 
far forward care and damage control surgery, not definitive surgery where I spend 18 hours in the belly and fix everything at one time. What we've really done is damage control surgery. And the last thing that really kind of pulls all those things together is we are now finally seeing the medic who is most far forward must be versatile in virtually all those things, which means we got to give them a training environment to do those things. In 20 years, what do I, what do, what do I see as being, uh, operational battlefield care? The battlefield will be completely different. It will be primarily drones, primarily long range precision fires. Very rarely will you have troops in the open because of any heat signature, or electromagnetic signature. They're going to get blown up. If there are casualties far forward, there's going to be a long field or prolonged field care with them. We're probably going to have autonomous unmanned vehicles that can go over, pick the patient up and fly them back to a relative place of care. One of the purposes of this podcast is to preserve the oral history of military medicine and really told from the perspective of military physicians. And so I I know that you're planning on writing a book. And, you know, what I want to ask you is 50, 100 years from now, what do you want your family to know about your legacy as a military physician? Um. Look, I, I, I did what I thought was best. Um, I moved toward the sounds of the guns. And I knew there were people in harm's way that needed good care, and I wanted to provide them the best care I could. And I left my family for a long time. You know, 10 years of being deployed every year for a decade, and that doesn't even count the time being the senior guy in Liberia for the Ebola outbreak. Um, I want my kids and my my grandkids and my family to know that um, in my mind, it was a choice of a sense of freedom and that it's not paid in one lump sum, but from the blood of every generation. And I was willing to do that. And it it took sacrifice. And so I want them to know that I love them. Um, I did not enjoy being away from them. And one of the things that kept me up at night for my uh, post-traumatic stress injury, which I have really, really markedly improved from, was what a tremendous sense of failure I had as a father because I was gone for so long. So I want them to remember I did what I thought was was right, not because I wanted to be away from you, but I wanted you to be safe. That's about as honest as I can be. Yeah, that's a that's a great sentiment, Jim. And I, I just want to thank you um, from both Wayne and I and from Wardock's podcast for taking your time and sharing your stories and sharing your insights. I think that our audience will really gain a lot from what you shared tonight. And so I just want to thank you for being on the show. Yeah, I, I, I'm really humbled that you asked me and I appreciate you letting me ramble and story tell the way that I do it. That is, uh, that is the real Jim Zarnick. Um, uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't add one piece of levity before I leave. And if you ask people that have deployed with Jim Zarnick, what they remember about Jim Zarnick is that Jim never deployed any place with less than 50 pounds of unpopped popcorn. And he always took his oil popcorn popper with him. 
And he always made popcorn for the troops around him because the smell of popcorn brought a sense of home to young people away from home. And no kidding, the first night that we flew after 9-11 and landed in the forward operating base, I had a small 36-hour bag that I could hand carry on the C-5 aircraft with me. And what I had in that bag was my popcorn popper. And the first night we landed, I made a batch of popcorn. And every time I deployed after that, I had it. And that was a sense of my family upbringing that I carried forward. And so um, there's more stories that I can tell you about the very strange places that Jim has made popcorn, but that's for another podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of War Docs Military Medical Podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and a five-star review and share this with your contacts on social media. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests at our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.